0: Hello, Andy Flynn. David Winchell, formerly of the DEC. How are you today?
1: I am fine. I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, reminiscing in preparation for the interview. And one of the things I was thinking about looking at the forecasts, you know, from last week to today till the end of this week um, is the old adironic adage that if you don't like the weather just wait a little bit it'll change
0: <laughs> yeah it's snowing now it uh, looks like a nice snowstorm but uh spring is coming at the end of the week
1: yeah i can't <laughs> believe it's going to be in the 60s on sunday That's what call a call cow i'll take it yep going down that dirt road
0: welcome to lake placid new york's olympic village it's home of the 1932 and 1980 winter olympics welcome to the show We are Lake Placid, brought to you by the Lake Placid News. I'm the editor, Andy Flynn, and we're celebrating all the people that make this one of the best places to live on Earth. Safe care right now. That's what you'll find at Adirondack Health. Many of you have delayed going to the doctor or the hospital during the pandemic, but at Adirondack Health, they've taken specific steps to increase your safety like streamlining their check-in process, using high-tech disinfectant machines. Bottom line, Adirondack Health makes your safety their top concern. Learn more at adirondackhealth.org. That's adirondackhealth.org. It was a Monday, November 2nd. I was on the phone with David Winchell. He spent 33 years working for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and he retired in October past 19 years he was the spokesman or officially the public participation specialist at DEC Region 5 in Raybrook. So we talked about his career and some of his thoughts on what's going on in the Adirondacks right now. I was thinking ahead of uh, this interview that uh, while you were still on the job we could not have this kind of interview you and I on the record. (laughs) It wouldn't be possible if you were still on the job. Uh, probably not. Yeah, I mean, I, at, at
1: least not in this manner of just me being able to speak totally freely.
0: Yeah, and uh, I've actually had to wait to to talk to certain people in in other department, other agencies, um, like the Adirondack Park Agency, uh, until they retire. And while they're on the job, we can't have this conversation afterwards. Uh, you know, just uh, say, "Hey, how you doing? How'd it go?" The past however many years. Um, It sounds strange to the public, though. I mean, the public doesn't quite understand why that is. I'll
1: be frank, neither do I. (laughs) Um, I will say, you know, I, I, you know, look back at my dealing with the media over the past 19 years in this position and how that has changed significantly um, to the point now where, well, There used to be times when Ellen would introduce me to people. Uh, She grew up here, so she knew a lot of people. She would introduce me, and they'd say, Oh, I know you. You're DEC spokesman, Dave Winchell says. (laughs) And now, you know, the people that are taking over my position. You know, people aren't going to know who they are in the public. It's going to be anonymous.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, starting out as a Saranac Lake reporter at the Adirondack Daily Enterprise. Uh, That was uh, actually November of 1994. But I I remember the following year, they had um, was one of the ponds they were reclaiming, so they were uh, uh, you know putting rotenone in there to reclaim the pond, and I went out there and I was able to. Take pictures and cover the story and interview uh, the fisheries guy in charge, and and we couldn't do that today. I don't think
1: it, we had some situations. It's it's not as simple as it used to be. That's for sure. Yeah, and I really think it, it does a disservice to all of our employees at DEC because you know people don't get to see what they're doing and not understand what they're doing and why they're doing it at, at, like they did over the years. I, I just really, one of the things I see is how things have changed so much, and I, and I don't think necessarily for the better.
0: So let's talk about you just a little bit. Uh, your your official title when you retired?
1: Public Participation Specialist.
0: Uh, we'll get to that, exactly what that means in a little bit. Uh, you live in Saranac Lake, correct? That's right. And Actually outside the village. Outside the village. And how old are you? You're pretty young. I just turned fifty nine. Okay, uh, just turned fifty nine, and and I think recently had a, a wedding anniversary. Yes, I yeah? did. Congratulations on both, and you. you've retired. Wow, what a what a month for you! Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and now looking forward to um, um, stacking firewood. So, I mean, that's I mean that's still kind of young to to retire. So, why was this the right time for you?
1: Uh, I had planned on retiring uh, next May. I I felt that uh, I put in, you know, over 33 years with the department. I had two young ladies working for me that one has been there for three years, the other one has been here for a year. So I felt, you know, I was leaving, I could leave the job in good hands. These people were Experienced and uh, could handle uh, what I was walking away from. So, and, and matter of fact, I think they'll do a much better job because they are both much more social media savvy than I am. And obviously, that's where we're headed, particularly with you know remote meetings and such.
0: Did the did the pandemic uh, kind of accelerate the timeline that, for you? That,
1: that was definitely part of it. Why I decided to go in October rather than wait till next May working from home really didn't, um, suit me, you know, just, it, it it was this internal conflict of looking around the house and saying, boy, I'd like to go do that and realize, no, I got to keep monitoring emails and phone calls and, you know, do do my job. So, uh, it just wasn't working well for me. And plus the whole anxiety over the pandemic and everything. And I just decided that I really didn't want to go through the winter having to be out in the public, you know, at at least, you know, even if the public was just our office building, but you know, that, that kind of exposure. So it certainly was part of the decision-making process.
0: Well, uh, you know, folks may be wondering, why are we talking to Dave Winchell? Who is this guy? Of course you said that, you know, uh, people know you as the spokesperson of, of uh, re- Region 5 for the DEC. So uh, they get to see your name in the paper and, and hear your name on, on the radio and and uh, possibly see you on the television as a spokesperson for Region 5. Um, in the grand scheme of things, the mission of the DEC partially is is to conserve, improve, and protect New York's natural resources and the environment. I'm wondering, as the public participation specialist, how is your role in the grand scheme of things, uh, to, to do that and, and, and complete that mission?
1: Well, uh, first, let me say, that's the first part of the mission. Right. The second part of the mission that often gets left out is that it's being done for the health, and and I'm not going to get this right, I'm paraphrasing, health benefit and welfare, social well-being of the people of the state. And so I think that's important, and that's where I think uh, my role um, really I think I assisted with that first part, but I was more important in making sure we got that second part of making sure the people of the uh, state, particularly here in the Adirondacks, both those that live here and those that are visiting here, understand what's happening um, with how we manage the forest preserve, how DEC managed the forest preserve. I'm trying to break myself of that habit of saying we. How the forest reserve was managed, how the forest reserve interacted with the private lands, including the communities in the Adirondacks, and, and uh, how they could recreate on these lands with while minimizing their impacts.
0: We're going to get to those big picture things uh, more in a little bit. I want to know a little bit more about you. You live in Saranac Lake right now, and uh, how did how did you get here? Did you grow up here? Where, where did you uh, grow up and and uh...
1: I grew up down in the lower Hudson Valley little was a farming community at the time when I grew up Montgomery, New York. I, uh, you know, had always had an interest in the outdoors fish and hunted with my father, uh, fished with friends, hiked and backpacked and camped, boated a little, you know, so I always had an interest in the outdoors. Um, and I pretty much had eighth grade decided where I was going to go to college. I, was going to go to SUNY Cobleskill for two years and then go to SUNY ESF for my upper two years, which is how the college was situated at SUNY ESF was only an upper class school at that time. So you had to get your two years, two years somewhere else. Interestingly, and this is something I, I don't know I've shared with many people, but there it was 1970 or 71. I'm not sure we were heading up to the Adirondacks coming up the North way. And just after you know, the exchange at the throughway, I noticed this building with this interesting symbol I'd never seen before. And I asked my father, what is that? And he says, oh, that's the state agency where the people there take care of the fish and wildlife and, you know, control, help control pollution and things like that. And to this day, I don't know if I said it out loud or just thought it, but I said, I'm going to work there someday. You know, we can say it was my dream came true. So I ended up, Many years later, after graduating from college, I spent a couple of years going through various odd positions, uh, nothing to do with my degree, and uh, was informed by a good friend who had worked for this unit that there was an opening in what was called the Biological Survey Unit at 50 Wolf Road, the um, then headquarters of the DEC, and uh I said I would look into it. I applied or I phoned on Monday, interviewed on Thursday and started the following Thursday. And essentially what that position was was taking all of the old paper data that had been collected since the 19 teens for fisheries related data and putting it into a computer database. That was in 1987 when I started there. In 1989, the, the unit was being downsized and moved up here to Raybrook and I had a choice I, I was offered that job and I was offered also offered a job in Newports. and my dream had always been to work in the Adirondacks since I was a kid so I took the job up here and uh really it was a struggle I was a you know grade eight fish and wildlife tech but I consider it worth it I actually was offered a biologist position in Albany at one point and uh, would decided to turn that down it would have been a 10 grade pay hike and said no i want to stay here and i have no regrets uh, particularly
0: how my careers turned out so was it 2001 that you were uh, put in that position of public was it public yes. participation or citizen participation specialist at
1: that time it was citizen participation specialist and in between i did spend so uh in 1993 and i can't i think it was june i'm not positive that i got hired took a position as a recycling specialist in the what was then the Division of Solid Waste Management. And I was with the Bureau of Waste Reduction and Recycling. So I, I did recycling, waste reduction and recycling in, in Region 5. And I did that until I got the job in 2001 as a participation specialist.
0: So, uh, and that's that's the time that we met. I was working at the uh, Adirondack Park Agency Visitor Interpreter Center at the time. I, I believe You're that's when right. we yeah. met. So I wasn't in this position uh, in journalism. I was between my journalism jobs because <laughs> I had just started, I think, uh, out there uh, from from um, moving from the managing editor position at the Adirondack Daily Enterprise. So uh, public participation, citizen participation specialist, it just sounds like you're the middleman, the liaison between the public and the DEC. Is this just a way of boiling it down?
1: Yeah, that really does boil it down. I, I'm both you know, the eyes and the voice and the ears uh, between the public and the DEC. So I help I'm not only getting information from DEC out, but I'm also as part of my job through public meetings and discussions, collecting information from people and passing that along to my colleagues so they can make informed decisions.
0: Has that job changed over the years over the past 19 years?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, what, I think what it's people have come to learn is that it is more important now than ever. I I think, you know, back in the days it was considered, oh, that's a good thing to do. Now, most regional directors look at their um, regional public participation specialists as an important component of the team of how we manage the uh, programs, the various programs, because they need that information from the public, they need to, Make sure they have good public information going out, whether it's through the media or through public meetings or, uh, you know, now through social media.
0: You know, it's it's easy from the outside uh, looking toward any organization, whether, it, whether it's state government, uh, a, a private organization. Uh, to say, well, this is what they should do, this is how they should do it, that sort of thing. There are plenty of challenges in every organization and limitations. A lot of it has to do with money, especially with, with budgets and everything. I'm wondering if, if money wasn't an object or if you were in charge, uh, and how, how would you change that position? Were, were, would there be any changes um, that you would make?
1: Um, I, I just like to see us being able to do more, um, get more uh, efforts out there to do. And and obviously, during the current situation, it's harder, but one-on-one has always been, or at least, you know, that interpersonal interaction with people, I feel has always been much more successful. So the, the ability to, to have more resources that allow you to, whether it's more staff would be the most likely to go out there and actually interact with people personally in person rather than through the phone through social media through you know right writing and such uh the
0: the whole pandemic covid uh, coronavirus whatever you want to call it um changed a lot of things changed how you worked changed how i work uh changed a lot of things but it also uh it brought a lot of people to the Adirondacks when we were, you know, especially to the uh, to, to outdoor recreation, whether it was boating or, or hiking in the high peaks, those sorts of things, and created a lot of challenges for um, for folks, especially for the DEC, who's in, in charge of those wild places, the Forest Preserve. Uh, how did you see that unfold over the past, you know, six, seven months?
1: Well, I mean, it, it just, what we saw was in the middle of... You know, I think one of the biggest effects and we'll see how they're I know they're working on their final report is the high peaks advisory group where we went from being able to meet personally all gathered in one room to uh, these remote meetings. And uh, while I think the good thing was that we had that time that people got to know each other and that made the remote meetings more productive, but it just kind of threw a um, loop to everybody. And, uh, you know, seeing and hearing the stories of what we we're seeing in the increased usage uh, just added to the concerns regarding the high peaks and the usage up here. I mean, one of the things we did is for the years we had been doing outdoor recreation promotion, trying to get people to go out and explore. And it came to that, you know, we really. There wasn't any place that people weren't going to, so we switched our messaging over to more focus on educating people on how to minimize one, how to be prepared uh, before going into the backcountry, but also how to minimize their impact on the environment, the natural resources, and other users.
0: That that seems like it, you know, it's it's a key aspect to protecting the the forest preserve is that education. But it's, it's not one of those things where you you, know, you spend you know, one or two years really educating the, as much as you can and then you just let it go. It just sounds to me like it's just an ongoing thing and more and more and more and finding all sorts of different ways to do it. But also if it, it, it looks as though it's, it's, it, that's, that's really tough to do and it's, it's um, almost impossible to reach everybody. Do you ever feel that frustration when you were in the job?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, particularly this year, we even had some people comment that education doesn't work and it's like, it does work. We're just not, we have a whole new audience here that we got to figure out how to connect with. Um, One of the things that also was a setback is uh, last summer we started with the 46 ers a trailhead stewardship project at the cascade mountain trailhead and that was working well. And we were looking to expand it this summer to other trailheads. And because of the pandemic, we couldn't do that. So we had more people coming that, you know, as we discussed, these people couldn't go to sporting events, they couldn't go to concerts, they couldn't go to restaurants, they couldn't, you know, all the entertainment things that they did in the past weren't available to them. So the only outlet was going outdoors. I mean, the usage was up and that's with the Canadian border closed. So, you know, and that they're usually 40 to 50% of the people, particularly in the high peaks region during the summer, that's where, you know, where a lot of our numbers come from. So it was just amazing to see the kind of numbers. One of the things in the high peaks advisory group, one of the things we were looking at early on was, okay, what is the data we need to get the information to help us make informed decisions? And early, shortly after the pandemics began and we saw all these high usage, the data people were like, it doesn't, this is an anomaly. It's going to be an anomaly one way or another. So it doesn't make sense to start collecting data this year. So hopefully things will be, I think usage will still be up next year. Uh, who knows where the pandemic is going to be? But I, I, I'm, I'm, hoping it's not up near as much as it was this year because uh, it it just, you know, we were overwhelmed and it wasn't just, you know, the back country that was getting overwhelmed. A lot of the front country and communities were being overwhelmed as well.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the the solutions that a lot of the environmental groups and even some uh, newspapers around the the North Country region have editorialized on this is is to set limits so, on how many people can go in the backcountry and how do you do that? Uh, when I say backcountry, I mean Eastern High Peaks, the, the highest usage area. Yeah. And, and to to do that, uh, institute a, a permit system. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I really don't know on on that. You know, I, I see the need. I do think we need to do something different. I think you know one of the things is that to really solve this issue there, there we need to yes we need to figure out how to um, control usage just how to do that I, I don't have the answer we also need to improve the education like I said before and if we you know we really need to look at expanding our education of the users and lastly I think we need to do a project that we started a year or two ago and well, we got the Van Hoel trail uh, completed. It's not finished, but it it was it got completed to the point. But the sustainable trails that, uh, for Mount Van Hoelgenburg East and the one that was under construction for the Cascade, I think we need to look at doing that as well to better harden these trails so that the damage of the use, they, it can withstand more use without significant damage. So I, I think there's a combination of things that, can be done. They're, you know, one of the things, and I won't go too much into the High Peaks Advisory Group because I, you know, they're they're currently working on their get, getting that final report together, and I don't want to get out in front of them. Yeah. But I do think there's no one silver bullet. And all these things together, they're going to take resources. You know, we're not going to get through this without really putting a significant amount of resources behind them. And uh, you know, obviously with the pandemic, that's something. You know, another thing that's not going to occur a- anytime soon. So it, it's a tough nut to crack, but I think there are, you know, we've got some good people looking at it and I think we may, you know, come out in the end with something that uh, is workable. I think one of the things that everyone has to realize is that if a solution is com- comes up and, and, you know, we start planning for these things, it's going to be five to 10 years before we really see the difference it's not going to change overnight, and I think people have to realize that and, and um, not have their expectations too high. That you know, we put something in place, and next year it's still not better. Well, it's not going to be. It's going to take time.
0: When you mention resources toward the uh, the problem, you mean like uh, funds and personnel, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd like us I'd like to see the state put as much money into promoting the Adirondacks take that same amount of money and put it into improving our backcountry uh, facilities and an increase in our staffing so that they can manage it
0: a lot of people they, they only see what what's happened in recent years they're seeing you know the anomaly what you call it the, the, the tons of people even without the canadian market coming to the adirondacks and overwhelming the front country the back country they see that time and and uh, you know alarms go off this has been happening for a long time and I'm just wondering, uh, and and specifically in the, in the past 19 years, you've been in you were in the public participation specialist role. It's just even gotten worse. Do you see the forest preserve in more danger or, or less danger than it was when you started, as far as overuse?
1: Well, with overuse, I think you know it, it, it's definitely you know the use has gone up significantly one thing i would point out is you know the high peaks ump the 1999 ump uh, at that point was really focused on the environmental damage caused by camping and backpacking so they addressed that a lot um and, and to the real benefit of the high peaks but since then is what happened is we've seen you know a, a huge rise in the number of day hikers and the day users just going in for a day and out and, and that's where the concern is now so You know, it's a whole different set of tools we need to look at to manage um, for this type use. And again, I think, you know, it's out there. I mean, one of the things is it's nice to have people that love this place so much that they wanna be here. And I think, you know, through like the Leave No Trace program where you're dealing, you know, with the authority of the resource and making people realize you love this place, don't you want to protect it? And I think that's, you know, one of the strongest efforts that we can make the strongest message we can get across to the people that are coming here to utilize the backcountry to help protect it. And I always use the example of the summit steward program and the summits where even though we have seen that increase in usage of people going up to those summits, we haven't seen a significant increase in damage. Matter of fact, to the best of my knowledge, you know, we're still seeing expansion of vegetation and decrease in erosion on most of those uh, alpine vegetated
0: uh, peaks. You've had long enough to see some really strange stuff uh, happen in the in the backcountry. You've had to report on or tell the, the public or the media about some really uh, strange stuff. I don't want to end this conversation without you telling me, what's the strangest thing you've seen as far as the, in the backcountry?
1: I think, I mean, I I actually, you know, it's not, if you're looking for what I actually witnessed with my eyes, I don't have that. But I do have many strange stories that came, you know, through my desk that I got to share with people. Yeah. Um, One of the strangest I think, is a young man who decided that he wanted to get water from Lake Tear of the Clouds and started off, I think, if I recall correctly, yeah, it was in March, and he had like almost like cowboy boot type boots on the, um, and stopped at the, he had a cotton hoodie, you know, just everything wrong that you shouldn't be uh, wearing, you know, to go on a hike when it's still winter conditions in the high peaks. And uh, the folks at the H pick managed to convince him that he needed to get snowshoes. So he had snowshoes, but come the find out, he didn't know how to put them on, so he just carried them up. He had a five-gallon water bottle from, like, a water bottle dispenser, water dispenser in an office, that type of big bottle. He dropped that when he was crossing Phelps Brook and broke that, decided to continue on, got up to um, – up on Marcy and just couldn't go any further, called his grandmother out – Oh, correct it's possibly even hawaii to try to get help it took them an hour to figure out what was going on and get him connected with our dispatch at which point it was dark and he uh wanted us to bring a helicopter up to pick him off the mountain and uh conditions were poor um so even if we had wanted to take a helicopter up there it, they, they couldn't fly in those conditions He specifically asked, don't you have somebody like Bruce Willis or Rambo that's willing to, you know, hop in that helicopter and come up and get me? Forest Rangers talked him into putting his snowshoes on and heading back down the path. So he's headed down the mountain while we were sending uh, Forest Rangers up. When they met up with him, they were talking to him and they were like, what were you going to do for food? He says, well, I was going to fish, you know, catch fish out of Lake Tier in the clouds and eat that, um, there are no fish there, one, and two, it wasn't trout season yet. We got back to Felt the Crossing at Phelps Brook and made him pick up all the broken glass to bring that out. It, it it just was the most bizarre thing. And then I think less than a week later he was involved in a snowmobile accident and a rescue over in on the western part of the adirondacks in D C region six, the same fellow. So I, I just perplexed by People like that that have no clue what they're getting themselves into, and, and you know the, the worst part is we you know had to send four forest rangers out in bad weather to you know rescue him from some place he should have never been.
0: And the the weird thing is these things happen all the time. I mean, a different scenario, you know, but right. people being unprepared and having expectations, getting into situations they have no idea. You know, so education, you know, the other thing
1: I I just want to the one that always baffles me is and and
0: like the it was the
1: weekend before um, I retired that they had, I think, eight rescues, eight or more. And all half of them were people that didn't have a flashlight or headlamp and got stuck out after dark. And it's such a simple thing that, you know, make sure you have that with you. And those people could have gotten out easily.
0: Something that simple. It it just boggles my mind. So what do you, you know, as you retire and go into the sunset down south, probably eventually, right?
1: Yeah, we'll probably at some point in the near, well, I don't know how near future, but we plan to spend six months down in South Carolina and six months up here.
0: Yeah. What do you what do you see as the future of the the forest preserve in New York State in in the Adirondacks for the next ten years twenty years thirty years, um, given the current situation?
1: I don't know. I'm not I, I'm not a good prognosticator. But one of the things I do feel confident in is two things that I saw in this position, and that is the passion that the people that live here have for the Adirondacks. And let me go back to one of the most enlightening uh, and satisfying moments personally and professionally in my life was in 2002. I was less than a year on the job and we were starting to, starting to draw up the management plan for the Saranac Lakes Wild Forest. And the forester suggested we put together a citizen discussion group, which, you know, wasn't going to be an advisory group. We just wanted to, again, have the information so that we were making informed decisions in our management plans. Uh, we invited representatives from each of the four towns that the Saranac Lake Wild Forest sits in, and each of the four at that time environmental groups um, the send representatives, and then we had a sportsman uh, representative. In the first meeting, all the town representatives sat on one side of the table, all the environmental group representatives sat on the other side of the table and you know i was kind of facing the sportsman group there in the middle we identified 13 issues that we felt needed to be discussed well for 13 issues that were important to the management of the saranax lake wild forest when i said well let's you know get this down to three or four issues that we can meet on to a person they were all like no we want to discuss all 13 of those so for the next 13 weeks we met one night a week with all those people to discuss these issues and by the third meeting the environmental representatives and the local government representatives were uh sitting intermingling uh, amongst themselves and what came out of it is as they talked and listened to each other they found out their differences weren't that far apart and you know the one thing that they all shared was a passion for the Adirondacks. And that's one of the things that has always given me, encouraged is me what's gonna happen to the future at Adirondacks, because the people really care. And we used to have foreign visitors come and t- meet with us. Uh, the State Department had a program that brought people there. And they always left and we, they would always comment on how impressed they were with no matter who they met with, the passion they had for the Adirondacks. So that, you know, will always give me hope. I mean, I feel that passion, obviously, and that's why I'm, you know, going to stay here for as long as I can. Added to that has been what's happened over the last 10, 15 years is the more organized grouping of bringing together of people of various opinions about the Adirondacks and bringing them together and getting them talking to each other and Common Ground Alliance, you know, great example of that. You know, even the Adirondack Park Local Government Day, you know, over the years, we've seen more and more participation by uh, environmental groups and not just, you know, local governments so they can talk to each other and hear what each other is thinking. So, you know, those two things, I, I can't say, you know, I'm not going to make any prediction of exactly what's going to happen, but I do have hope because of those things that I just described that it, we're going to be all right.
0: Well, David Winchell, uh, who just retired as the public participation specialist at DEC Region 5 in Raybrook, thanks for your time, Dave, and uh, happy retirement.
1: Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it.
0: For more on this story and the latest news in sports from New York's Olympic region, check out the Lake Placid News. We're on stands now. Or, if you insist, check us out online at www.lakeplacidnews.com. Special thanks to Dan Berggren for providing our music. Learn more about Dan and his fascinating story, a life in radio, education, and folk music at berggrenfolk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Andy Flynn, editor at the Lake Placid News. We are Lake Placid.